You know, one of the, one of the things the research is showing us is that this this whole nonsense about predisposing the jury and, and uh, preconditioning the jury, and you know, it, it has about this much uh, substance to it. Because any anything that really occurs like that is over the next day. You know, I mean, people are very complex. Our, our brains are very complex. Uh, and so we, we and, and I'm not saying that we should be able to do it, but, but what I see is there is so much concern about it. And, and uh, from the, the bench in particular, you know, and from the adversaries, you know, that, that we, we, move, we lose sight of what we're doing. You know, the, the real purpose here is to find out, do they come to the, to the table with, with significant enough biases that it's just not a fair trial, you know? But we're so afraid that the lawyers are gonna precondition them we never get to that, you know, and so we end up with this this roll the dice type of jury. Although I, I'm finding, you know, that that there there there's much more to be concerned about from an advocate point of view when when doing voir dire uh, than pre preconditioning. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's a great book I'm reading now. It's called Duped. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in his in his latest book. Uh, uh, what is that book? I just saw it. Talking to strangers. Oh, strange strangers. Yeah, yeah. Talking to strangers. <laughs> and so I, you know, I read that, and then I read. You know, I've been reading Duped, and it's it's fabulous work. Uh, and you know, it, it what are, the premise of it is 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 that because the way we evolved, when whenever we have an interaction with somebody, especially a stranger, our default position is to believe them. You know, that, that, that's the default position. And, and of course it would have to be, you know, in a state of nature, if somebody comes and tells me there's a lion behind that bush, I better believe them. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. The consequences of him being, uh, of, of him telling me a lie, are not existent and the consequences of him being truthful are extreme. Uh, so, sure. so that's how we approach people. Now, you know, the plaintiff in a lawsuit, and then what happens is we look for triggers. We look for triggers that slowly erode that belief, you know, and to the point where we become suspicious of them. You know? Now, the, the plaintiff in a lawsuit or the defendant in a criminal case those triggers are there to begin with because we're asking for something, you know, I mean, there's the, the jury is, it has oh. predisposition to, yeah. but not a lot. I mean, there's really not a lot there. And uh, huh. so, anyway, there's a story I want to tell you. The, the last trial I did, I was doing with my son and uh, my son did the, the mini opening. And then he had to go to a wedding. And the next day I was doing the jury selection, right? Uh, and we get this email from the court at seven o'clock that he wants us there at 8.30. Uh, and unfortunately my son had, had left, he, this was up in Oakland and he went back to San, he, well, he went to San Diego for the wedding. And so, you know, I knew something bad was happening. And so I, I show up at 8.30 and this, 
And the judge is now even more angry because Kale's not there. And he, the, the judge had got it into his mind that Kale had uh, had uh, violated the motion in limine. And I really didn't think he had. Uh, yeah. It, uh, you know, it was a wobbler type thing. But, you know, if I was the judge, I wouldn't have been concerned about it. And it certainly did not have any impact on the case. Uh, of uh and it was how the crash happened uh versus and they had admitted liability and i mean it was it was silly but it had nothing to do with what the ultimate result would be and uh but anyway you know so i've got this incensed judge on my hand hands and uh and we dealt with the issue but the judge would say to me before more dire you violate one motion one one ruling, you know, during Boy Dyer, uh, I'm going to report you to the state bar and blah, 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 blah. I mean, he was really overreacting to all of it. Of course, right. that probably might have been me telling him he was violating the judicial canons, but you know, probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but, and, and it was really kind of an interesting thing because he, he was really a good judge, a smart guy. And just for some reason, he went off. Uh, and he says, and you have a half hour. That's all. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, oh. You know, I'm really concerned. So for the first time in my life, I was absolutely perfect in not violating rules, you know, of just going for cause just going for the things that that would were appropriate for cause and and since it was a damages case it was had all to do with all of the damages we would be asking for you know what their thoughts were about that after the half hour one of the jurors said you know i gotta feed the meter and so the judge said okay let's take a break so you can go put money in the meter and when you come back, Mr. Paris will resume. Now, and, and the reason he changed his mind is because I was totally within the confines of asking for cause. And so I, I'd never actually done that before because you know, I used to be a believer in preconditioning and all this other nonsense. And I realized a few things. And one is that because of that, that truth default, aspect of it. It's incredibly important that we do stay within the rules during Boyd Iyer, that we give them no reason to believe that we're cheating in any way, you know, because I think that's the most critical time where the, the jury is assessing the credibility of the adversaries. And it all comes around back to, can you believe them? Are they playing fair? You know, are they cheating? Uh, and it was the best void hire I'd ever done. I mean, in regards, and I, and I, and I judge the void hire by the feeling of connection I have with, with the jury, you know, and with the people I'm talking to and, and how, how are we connecting, you know? And, uh, it, it was just a remarkable experience. And the judge let me go as long as I wanted to go. I think it was about an hour and a half, two hours before I was finished. Uh, 
And when I was finished, you know, and then the defense gets up and do what they always do, which is I'm not quite sure what they do. <laughs> you know, they, can you be fair? Can we, you know, the, the, the traditional nonsense that, that doesn't really discover anything about the person. What we're really doing is establishing that initial relationship with the jury. And that's why we have to be scrupulous in how we approach it. They have to get comfortable with this. They have to trust us by the end of it. Uh, one time I tried a case with Brian Panish, and I'll never forget him saying about the second or third day into it, because, you know, it takes about a week for them to trust us, you know, and sure enough, that's, that's accurate. That's what occurred. The, uh, am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that makes sense to me. First impressions are so critical. And like, you, like you're saying that, that why wouldn't that apply to voir dire? The, uh, you know, what you're doing is you, is you want to give them the other side, the jury reasons to distrust the other side, you know, triggers, why they should be suspicious of them. But what you want to be very careful of is to give them nothing where they make that determination of you. And, you know, as, as I just study this more and think about it more, I also realize that's why we're far more successful when we keep our client out of the courtroom. You know, because they're constantly being examined by the jury and, and every examination will result in additional triggers to disbelieve them. Because, you know, juries are creating their own narratives. You know, the, uh, you know, most of our cases involve injuries and, you know, people who are in chronic pain. But, you know, the, the level of pain they're in uh, increases during the day. And so if they see them in the morning, they're not going to see that. If they see him at five o'clock, they will see it. Uh, so I just keep the, the client out of the courtroom. But I never really understood why that was the case. I just knew that it was. And now I kind of understand why. And then, you know, the, the, so much of what we do is, is just wrong. You know, the, the prevailing view used to be, you know, you want your client sitting next to you the whole time. And, you know, you want to show how concerned they are in their case and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, I think everybody knows that somebody seriously injured is concerned about what is happening in their case. Uh, Makes sense. And now the, the end result of that was at the end of Roy Dyer, they, they paid us eight figures. And they, they weren't anywhere near that when we walked in. So they settled right after Roy Dyer, basically? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, your case is over after Boy Dyer anyway, for the most part, you know, because people make up their mind and unless something compelling happens, uh, you know, you, you got a pretty good idea what will happen, at least as the, the, the gross of, you know, findings. I think that um, there's a trend to using psychographics more than demographics in uh, jury selection now. I think demographics are useless. Uh, the only, I mean, we do an incredible amount of research, both uh, surveys on the internet, showing videos on the internet, you know, uh, surveying hundreds, if not thousands of people, uh, plus regular focus groups and, and everything else that goes into it. And the only demographic that I have found that seems to be consistent 
is Latino women, second gen, I mean, uh, first generation Latino, you know, Americans and uh, women have trouble getting over seven figures. You know, that seems to be consistent. And I've never understood why second generation Latino women, that's not the case. Uh, and that is, that is just what the research shows. I, I don't know why that's the case. I think the system's over. I, I don't think it's, I don't think that the, the, uh, the system we have now is sustainable because of the cognitive science aspects to it. Uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It could be just that the plaintiff's lawyers are, are a very small group of plaintiff's lawyers are taking the time to learn the cognitive science. Defense lawyers tend not to do that because they don't get paid for it. You know, they get paid by the hour and no carrier is going to pay them to learn this stuff. Uh, the, uh, but I, I'm not so sure that it shouldn't be that way. I mean, what is the value of taking all of a person's joy away from them? It's significant. You know, the, the question is, is there enough uh, collectively to pay for that? You know, and I, I think ultimately what will occur is, is our system of justice is going to change. You know, like in Germany, you hurt somebody in Germany, the law requires you to take care of them forever, you know, for the rest of their life, because you took that away from them. You know, uh, every insurance policy, this is 25 years ago, was a million douche marks. You know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the governmental system was there to take care of it. And here it's not, we rely on the tort system. Now, the insurance companies resist any changes to that because they're out of business then, you know? Uh, so I don't, I don't have any, necessarily any sympathy for them. Uh, but it, uh, you know, we, we talk about accountability in this country, but we really don't like it. You know? I think we, we were the, the, on the forefront of bringing the recognition to the plaintiffs, uh, lawyers, that pain and suffering is not what we should be talking about. What we should be talking about is what has been taken away. The, the, the joy of life that has been taken from our clients as a result of the injury, as a result of the pain and suffering. And of course, you know, that really came from the work we did with uh, Mark Johnson, uh, Lakoff and Johnson fame on, on abstract cognitive metaphors. There is no, you know, most all abstract thought derives from uh, abstract metaphors. The, we, don't, we really don't know how to think abstractly without looking at a metaphor to anchor it to. And, in Western culture, there is no metaphor for pain and suffering having value. And in fact, it doesn't, it's a negative. You know, the, the, the example I use is I have corns on my feet. You know, I, when they get too bad, I can't wear my boots. And if I can't wear my boots, I'm the mayor of Lancaster and I can't be the mayor unless I'm wearing boots. And the, uh, that, that also is a metaphor, it's not true. The, uh, the, so, you know, sometimes I'll cut my feet when I'm trying to trim them. I got to go to a podiatrist and you know, all the troubles that come with corns on your feet. You want to buy them? 
How much will you pay for my corns? Isn't that what we're doing with the jury? Western culture that pain and suffering equals anything other than, you know, I mean, you don't pay for that. You, you wouldn't give anything for that. And so here we're asking them to give something for it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But in Western culture, well-being equals wealth. Nobody will dispute that, you know? How many times have we heard, yeah, but he's got his health, right? Uh, take all my money, but not my health, right? Well-being, that has value. And so what, what we were the leaders in, I think, is the proponents of the idea, when you talk to juries, talk about the well-being that has been taken away. And what are the examples of that? And, you know, one of the things we, we do is we never, if we can avoid it, I mean, sometimes they just throw so much money at us, we have to do it. But never settle your loss of consortium case because that's where the well-being lies, you know? And you have, you have the spouse being able to testify as to the loss of well-being. Uh, and, and also our, you know, our research with jurors is, is generation X and younger. It, it all is about the impact on the family. They, that, that's what they really will compensate people for if there's a negative impact on the family. Um, not so much with, our, with people my age. I hired Mark Johnson to teach a group of my friends, lawyers, how to, how to use abstract metaphor, you know, with the, within your trials. And he, you know, he's the, him and Lakoff are the world's experts on that. And, uh, and then it's spread. That concept is spread significantly. Uh, the, you know, the other thing is, is we, we get a tremendous amount of money for non-surgical cases because we should get enough, uh, a tremendous amount of money for them. Because they're just a significant, what is the matter if you've had a surgery? You know, what, what does that matter? The other, the other thing we do is, is you know, we waive uh, past medical bills almost in almost every case. We, we don't want to talk about those for a lot of reasons. Because the real value of the case is what's going to happen in the future not what happened in the past. And I, and I don't like giving a solid anchor that is irrelevant to the jury. And that's what you do when you put in the past specials.